You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, beginning with the first verse through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we are thankful for your word, that it has come, that it is here. Uh, Even this book of Acts is not just a uh, newspaper article recounting some events that have happened in in the past, but that it is your word to us. So we delight in it, and we pray that we would see and hear from you tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Those of you who are still in town for this Labor Day weekend, uh, it seems like uh, this week, certainly just this time, is a time of important transitions. Uh, Schools are reopening and or moving to Uh, fully online all over the country, like vaccine news is pretty hot and heavy right now. Uh, We're likely anywhere from like two to five months away from that. Uh, The English Premier League, uh, college football, and the NFL all start next weekend. Sorry for all you Big Ten and Pac-12 fans. Uh, There's there's a presidential election in two months. Shoot, it's, I saw the weather this week. It's supposed to be 99 tomorrow and then possibly snowing on Tuesday night. Uh, There's lots of transition right now, and the Bible is also just full of transitions, or perhaps a a better word than that might be developments or progressions. God's slow unfolding of his plan to create, to redeem, and to dwell with humanity. And the book of Acts is a serious mile marker in that progressive unfolding. I'm really glad to be opening this book with you all uh, this evening. Starting this, this fifth book of the New Testament, if you're new to the Bible, you can find the book of Acts and the table of contents there, or it's the the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. While it's 
this book has been a regular go-to just in my devotional life, throughout my life. I have never taught through this, even like at a small group level or like a one-off sermon. So I'm really excited just personally, selfishly, uh, for all the ways that I'm expecting God to shape and transform and challenge me through this book. Uh, But what is this book? Many of your English translations, in fact, the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have call it the Acts of the Apostles, and that's true. Others have called it throughout the years the Acts of Jesus, or the Acts of the Spirit, or the Acts of the Church. Maybe we could say all of that. This book is a book of the Acts of Jesus through the Spirit, through the Church. Acts is history. It's, it's written by Luke, the, the good doctor. Remember Luke from the end of Colossians from many months ago when we were finishing up that letter of Paul where Luke, the beloved physician, greets the Colossian church. If it weren't for that reference, we wouldn't know that this guy Luke is a doctor, but we do. And Luke says this in Acts 1.1, as we've already heard Allison read for us. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do, to do and teach. So now some people think that this person, Theophilus, uh, which by the way, this word, just this name literally just means lover of God or God lover. So maybe Luke is just writing this for anyone out there who particularly loves God or wants to know about the promises of God made realized through Christ. Uh, But considering that these ancient scrolls, the ink required, uh, the whole process of writing something down, like a, the, the book of Acts, would have cost at minimum something like four to $5,000 in today's dollars. Uh, you couldn't just like sit down and just, like type out your thoughts. Or you were likely hiring professional scribes to write down these things. The papyrus scroll itself, if we enrolled it, would have been about 35 feet long. That's just the book of Acts, uh, not to mention the, the first book of Luke that went with it. So Theophilus, more likely, is a wealthy Christian who is commissioning Luke to do this work. And like I said, it's history. In Luke 1, well, you know what, just flip back. Flip back to Luke, two books. Luke 1, and look what Luke writes in his intro. In Luke 1, 1, Luke says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that, I, that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so, now back to Acts, we can assume that this same guy who wrote the book of Luke uh, hasn't changed his method or the reason for his writing. He is undertaking to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished as testified by eyewitnesses into an orderly account. But no history is impartial. Every historian, uh, even every journalist, has their own beliefs, have their own assumptions. They highlight and emphasize things for a reason. I just appreciate that Luke just comes out and says it. In Luke 1.4, he says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so, if we want to call like the book of Luke, Luke 1, and then the book of Acts, Luke 2, or Luke-Acts, as some people put them both together, part 1 and part 2, Acts is that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught about the Lord Jesus. That in time and space, 
Christ Jesus appeared. He came and appeared as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He came as the deliverer of God's people, the conqueror of God's enemies, the king and ruler of God's kingdom. And this is my prayer for all of us as well, that we might be confidently sure of the person and work of Jesus in his earthly ministry, in his heavenly ministry, in his work and through the early church, in his work uh, through our church, and in his work in our own individual hearts and minds. So maybe, maybe for the first time tonight, you would come to hear and consider Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Undoubtedly, there are some who need to hear and respond to this message today. Maybe still others of us through this book of Acts need our hope to be more surely fixed to Christ Jesus, our sure and steady anchor. Let's get after it. Let's get after it in this book. I'm really excited about this. Narrative is really weird, all right? Uh, This is, sometimes it doesn't follow the course of logical argument like in some of Paul's letters or like in some of the poetic stanzas that we've been following through some of the Psalms in the past month or so. So we're not necessarily every time, every week, going to just go verse by verse through uh, a a given text. Two halves tonight we're going to look at comparing characters, comparing uh, what is happening in these first 11 verses. First, with the acts of Jesus, and then second, with the acts of his people. What Jesus does, and then what his people do. So first of all, the acts of Jesus. In, in Luke 1, Luke gives us a, or in Luke, not the chapter 1, but in Luke 1, Luke part 1, the gospel of Luke, Luke gives us a detailed and full picture of Jesus's life and work. But the physical work of his ministry is actually not fully completed in the gospel of Luke. His ascension also must come. In some senses, the ascension of Jesus is a transition moment. There's good reason why it appears here in Acts 1, almost as like the last act of Luke, And in fact, as uh, we might sum up this sermon today in one sentence, is is that as Jesus secures the work of his earthly ministry, that he then sends his disciples to continue his earthly ministry. And so this act is very much a transition moment. But the ascension is actually how Jesus secures his earthly ministry. It's what some theologians call the forgotten act of Jesus, the ascension. It is an act. It's not like Jesus just gets like teleported or like vacuumed up to heaven at the end of what he's come to do. In fact, we might say that his entire life and ministry, even his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, all of that is just pregame to this moment in Acts 1. The cross and the empty tomb are vital and indispensable. It is good and right that we often and ongoingly sing, pray about, meditate on, reflect on the meaning of the cross and resurrection. It's undoubtedly true that the ascension here could not have happened apart from the cross and the empty tomb. But likewise, the cross and empty tomb would be meaningless without the ascension. We could not be saved apart from the ascension. So how's that? How and why? Let's look, read, and consider, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. 
After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So before his ascension, Luke reminds us of what Jesus began to do and teach. That's what happens in the book of Luke. And that word began is actually very important. As we'll absolutely see throughout the rest of this book, Jesus will still do and teach even after his ascension. In fact, many have observed the kind of like structural and narrative parallels between the teaching, between the work, between the suffering of Jesus in the book of Luke and the teaching and the work and the suffering of his church in the book of Acts. They very much parallel each other in their progression. We'll note those similarities as we go through. But Jesus will continue to work in the book of Acts. So after his death on the cross for the sins of the world, which Luke goes at great pains to show that, Jesus then is risen and he is uh, victorious over sin and death. And then he appears to many witnesses, especially to his disciples over 40 days, teaching them. Teaching them what though? Like these men had spent three years at their master's feet, learning from him daily. And here he is, then now teaching them again. Presumably teaching kind of the way that he began to teach uh, some uh, two other disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, showing them why it was necessary from the whole Old Testament, from Moses and the prophets, that the Christ should suffer. And so Peter's sermons that we're going to see in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 are like theological masterpieces. And they likely came from this 40-day crash course seminary with the God-man himself. Like, that'll work. That'll, that'll help in putting together the whole Old Testament story, putting together what Jesus has been doing and teaching through his ministry. And so then in verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized, verse 5, with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now we'll spend some more time in thinking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, in chapter 2, and in fact, many, many other times throughout this book. But for now, let's just consider and repeat something that we've often said, uh, that efficiency sure does not seem to be one of God's highest values. So first of all, Jesus stays with them for 40 days. Now, for sure, the seminary crash course was valuable. And just think about, but seriously, like think about what Jesus could have been doing apart from those 40 days, rather than just like hanging out with his disciples with their Bibles open. Like the people that Jesus could have healed, the sin that he could have confronted, as effective as Peter's sermon in Acts 2 is going to be in Jerusalem. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ in that sermon. Imagine how many would have come to faith had Jesus himself delivered that sermon. Like the risen Lord himself coming to confront the city that had crucified him. Think what he could have done. Now, it's not only that Jesus has some like effective plan of efficiency that 11 apostles, and then as we'll see next week, a 12th replacement apostle can do more and around in other places than he could have done by himself or something like that. It's not just like uh, a business plan of reproducing himself, although that's true. It sure would seem to be more efficient than to just like get the show going and send the Spirit now. Like, what's the deal with all this waiting? 
Why not 40 days before? Why is he sending them back to Jerusalem and just saying, hey, hang out and wait there? The Father will send the Spirit at some point. We'll think more about that in a couple weeks. But what is the deal with all this waiting? Well, again, it seems that long-term transformation of character through dependence on God is way more important to God than short-term result of action through zeal for God. God cares way more about the transformation of his people rather than what they can accomplish for him. Like, there's a thousand places of application for us here. And we'll think through those in these coming weeks. But, how about this? We really want to be a church-planting church. We desire to plant more churches. Praise the Lord, uh, Desert Springs Church planted us four years ago, and we desire to reproduce as well. Lord willing, we'll even send many of you out someday to help plant a church in Albuquerque or beyond. We will want the pastor or pastors of that church, though, to have some life behind them, some maturity behind them. We won't ever have an age minimum, but we want pastors and people that are planting this church to be mature, prepared, even broken, rather than maybe some like 23-year-old guy who Uh, is merely just zealous, excited, and depending on his own abilities. As these future humble pastors and people are planting and leading churches, we hope that they are reproducing then humble and mature churches. So we've never said, from day one, we've never said, we will have planted a church by year five, or we will have planted five churches by year 10, or something like that. If Jesus provides, and the Spirit prepares and sends, then praise God for that church or for those five churches. But here, in waiting, God is shaping and forming and transforming his people into action. Yes, and we ought to keep praying and be moving towards action. More on that in a minute. But we want to also be people of patience as well. Mature men and women who will trust him, who will depend on him, who will not get out in front of our skis, trusting in our own abilities and even depending on our own zeal. But unless the Lord does build the house, the laborers build in vain. So Jesus teaches, he commands, he prepares his people, and as we'll see, he will send his people. Here he's going to send these disciples as witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth but he says this to them to continue his earthly ministry. It was an earthly ministry of um, ways and motives that would have been unexpected, slow and patient things. But then, verse 9 just comes out of nowhere and it comes like a shot. He's said all these things, he's going to send his disciples, and then, verse 9, when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, like, we know this is going to happen. The subtitles in our Bibles say in big italics, the ascension. So we're prepared for it. We, have, we're, we know that if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know from uh, reading the Bible and or flannel boards when you were a kid that this happens, right? But it's crazy. 
It's really crazy. Uh, like this week, David Blaine was in the, in the news. Did you see this? Like he was floating around. He tied a bunch of helium balloons to his body and he was like disrupting air traffic, uh, just being David Blaine. You know, <laughs> I pictured him making that face in space or in the air. But like that, that, that was a wild newsworthy moment this week. This guy flying around in the clouds. But imagine you're the disciples and Jesus tells you that he is going to send you as witnesses and then his feet leave the ground. And not like one of those David Blaine like perspective tricks of like, you know, like I'm floating or something. Like his feet and then his body actually begin to leave the earth. And then not just leaving the ground, but he's in the clouds. And this is in a culture certainly that doesn't have airplanes or helicopters or even helium balloons in which seeing things in the sky is natural for us. Only thing that they've ever seen in the sky are birds and clouds. And here the Lord Jesus is among them. Crazy. Now I think one reason we can kind of blow past this is not just because it's weird and we can't really imagine it ourselves. Like, if this were one of us, it'd be like this really weird, like Mary Poppins moment, like banging against the ceiling, or I don't know, like the, the Mama Dursley uh, in uh, the Harry Potters, like bouncing around and floating. It's weird for us to imagine. But it's weird for us to imagine also because it gets like one phrase, maybe two phrases in one sentence. He was lifted up and a cloud took him from their sight. Like, was Jesus talking? When he was ascending, like, bye-bye, or, or like, were there heavenly trumpets blowing? What is going on? Are the, are the disciples, like, are they confused? Are they singing? Are they worshiping? Are they just waving goodbye? Like the last credit scene of the end of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, <laughs> like, just waving goodbye. Like, it is a very, all of this is just left to our imagination because it is so short. But it is all of this shouldn't actually be left to our imagination because what's happening as he is floating away, as he's waving or not waving, as there is music or not music, is actually not the point or the goal. The destination, the, the purpose and the end point of the ascension is actually the goal here. Not the moment of transition, not the moment of ascension, the end point of the ascension is what is being highlighted. The ascension of Jesus isn't Jesus just saying goodbye and good luck to his disciples. It is Jesus receiving his kingdom. Back in Daniel 7, Daniel 7, there's all this crazy stuff that's been happening in the first seven chapters of that book. There's lots of visions and kings and kingdoms being overthrown and like really weird dreams and lots of crazy stuff. And in Daniel 7, Daniel, he has this vision. He has this vision of God, and here's what he sees. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Luke isn't mentioning clouds 
and mentioning this newspaper report uh, because that's all that was happening. Luke is making a theological statement that Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel 7, who has just received an eternal kingdom, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. Because here's the thing. When the pre-existent second person of the triune God, God the Son, descended to earth in his incarnation, the thing that we like celebrate and remember at Christmas, God the Son takes on a new nature. He doesn't become any less God, but he does take on, he adds on a human nature. God the Son, Jesus Christ, now at Christmas in the incarnation becomes not just God, but the God-man. And so when the God-man ascends back to the Father, he ascends now in a way that he has actually never been with the Father. Does this make sense? He ascends now for the very first time back into communion with the Father as a man, with an actual body. He ascends as a man. And this is just so much about what the entire book of Hebrews is about, that Jesus enters into the heavenly places on our behalf as our priest, for humans as a human. He is God, so he is able to transcend human nature and human sin, living in perfect love, in perfect righteousness, but he is human, so he is able to live as us and for us, our mediator welcoming humanity into the life of the triune God. And so the cross and the resurrection are extremely important to our understanding, to our faith, to our justification of being made right before God through the forgiveness of sins, the power of the gospel. But do not forget the ascension. Jesus does not just leave an empty cross. He does not just leave an empty tomb, but he fills a throne. He guarantees his work on behalf of his people to the end. Apart from the ascension, we have no assurance. How's that? Well, the ascension of Jesus assures us of a few things. One, that our salvation is not just a spiritual one. Jesus Christ ascends with a body. And we might still say Jesus Christ still has a body. He is an embodied human being, the God-man. He has not just come to save you from your sins that you might just sit around waiting in forgiveness, and then when you die, you too will float away in a cloud. No, Jesus' body ascends in a cloud. He has come to redeem and recreate a physical world, including our physical bodies. He'll do this once and for all at the resurrection of the dead, as the new Jerusalem descends and heaven and earth are reunited as they were on a small-scale form in the garden or in the temple. But for the Christian, for those of you who are in Christ, if you were to die before his return, when he does make all of these things new, uh, Garrett Dawson in his book, Jesus Ascended, says this, that a human hand will grasp us as we make our way into heaven, securing our relationship with the Father. That's astounding. The Christian faith and the kingship of Jesus is not just made up of like some spiritual platitudes, some like one-liners of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Those are all true. 
But the Christian faith isn't merely a spiritual one. It is a physical one, an embodied eternal king that guarantees your eternal life through his life and death and resurrection and ascension. Salvation isn't just a spiritual hope or a fairy tale. The physical ascension of Jesus guarantees physical salvation as well. He is the firstfruits, the firstborn, who along with him is bringing many sons to glory. But his ascension doesn't just guarantee and assure our physical salvation as well, but his ascension also brings assurance because he actually assures and secures your relationship with the Father through the ascension. In Jesus' completed work, fulfilled at his ascension, Paul says in Ephesians 1 with Daniel 7 language that God the Father displays his power in raising the Son from the dead and then seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is the goal and the end of Jesus' whole life and ministry, to be seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. But why should we care? Well, because of Hebrews 6, in which we read that we have this as a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He saves a seat. Because of your union with Christ, Christian, listen to this. Because of your union, union with Christ, no one apart from Jesus himself is closer to the Father than you. You have acceptance, you have warmth and security and communion with the triune God because of Jesus' ascension and his seated, completed work. It is finished. But while his work of securing and assuring the salvation of his people is finished, he has more work to do. He says of his work, it is finished, but he says now of his disciples, it begins. So secondly, the acts of his people. Now remember, we're tracing this section through characters and not necessarily chronology, so let's, uh, let's jump back now in time before the ascension. So Jesus had told his disciples that they must learn, they must wait, they must receive and grow. And Jesus has conquered sin and death, so they are not wrongly excited for more of that, for more of the kingdom. So in verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So maybe they're saying, all right, we get it now. We We understand our previous misunderstandings of the kingdom. We now do see why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die. We didn't see that coming at the time, but now we get it. But now, now is is the time where you will take the throne as David's son. Now is the time where you will at least kick out the Romans, but maybe even better, kill the Romans. But in his first coming, Jesus has not come to take an earthly throne. His kingdom is not like any of us would have expected or prescribed. We and the disciples would have probably just had him enter into the presidential race like as a third-party candidate, like right now. Like if we could ask Jesus to do something right now, maybe that's what we would ask him to do. Like two months before the election, I'm still somewhat confident that like a winsome and serious third-party candidate, if they entered the race today, they would still have an outside to decent chance of winning the whole darn thing. But if Jesus Christ entered this election, I'm pretty sure he could do it. 
It'd be a slam dunk. Like even if Jesus would just like run for mayor or even we would probably all take city council or school board or something. Like imagine what Jesus could accomplish in this city or certainly as a governor or a president or a prime minister or like the secretary general of the United Nations. What Jesus could accomplish in any of these posts. But Jesus has already told his disciples that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The kingdom of Christ is an upside-down kingdom with very small and unexpected beginnings. It's a kingdom of weakness and not power, of vulnerability and not strength, of love and grace and compassion rather than hatred and mockery and vindictiveness. It is a bottom-up movement of the transformation of individual hearts who are then united together by the Spirit into individual churches, who are then all united together universally into what God intends for the body of Christ on earth, that of a gigantic tree of rootedness, of protection, of fruit for the world. Not just him, Jesus, coming to take a throne and then just making a bunch of commands and getting things done this way from top down, but from the bottom up in and through his people. Now, one day and someday, our Lord King Jesus will indeed return a second time and fully and finally take his seat on an earthly throne, vanquishing and eradicating sin and violence and corruption and exploitation and false worship forever, both out there in the world and come Lord Jesus in here in our own hearts. But Jesus tells them, and he tells us in verse 7, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know. Now, many Christians get very much into reading the news these days, finding uh, what seems to be events and signs and connections that will indicate the return of Jesus as imminent. It could happen at any second. I've certainly seen the, uh, like an uptick in fascination of this kind of thing. Uh, just since in this year because of COVID. I'm hearing from many of you and your conversations that you're having with friends. um, This isn't just an online phenomenon. Shoot, maybe even you find yourself to be more excited these days about trying to make connections from the news to the Bible. And behind the curiosity is likely a good motive of expectation of the kingdom of Christ to come finally and fully, of hope in the kingdom to come. Come, Lord Jesus. That is a good thing to Pray, hope, and expect. I don't mean to be a wet blanket here, though, so I'll just let Jesus be the wet blanket. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed for his own or by his own authority. Not only does it seem historically unwise to try to connect like a COVID vaccination to like the mark of the beast or something, besides just likely a complete misunderstanding of what the mark of the beast actually is, that of bearing and carrying and following the way of the world rather than bearing, carrying, following the way of Christ, just like, you know, the third commandment, not bearing the name of the Lord in vain, but a sliver of nearly every generation of Christians have read and, in hindsight, have misread the news. 
We can look back and just chuckle at these monks in the year 999, as on New Year's Eve, they were just surely confident that Jesus was going to return at the stroke of midnight. We can chuckle at Martin Luther. Pretty much all of the Christianity in the world in World War I, or the establishment of Israel in 1948. You guys remember this guy in 2011, Harold Camping? He was big news for a while. Uh, who was sure in making confident predictions of the return of Christ on May 21st, 2011. It was going to happen. He didn't. Jesus did not return on May 21st, 2011. So we can look back and like smugly chuckle at those folks who are clearly buffoons, misreading the news, making all kinds of goofy connections from the newspaper to the Bible without the slightest notion of irony or self-awareness. Or as John Piper says, it's fairly historically unaware and a narcissistic generation that assumes that the most important events in the history of the world are happening right now as if everything that is happening in the news hasn't happened a hundred or a thousand times in the history of humanity. But even more than that, and here's where we're finally going to get to the acts of his people, here's why Jesus tells his disciples that it's not for them or for you to know the times or the seasons of his return. The point of any end times text in the Bible is not that you would unroll your charts or your timelines on your table or hang them up on your wall, but the point of any end times text in the Bible is so that the disciples and you would get to work. Verse 8, right after he tells them this, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons, but verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The gospel must advance. The gospel must go out. The Holy Spirit will come and fill Jesus' people with power, and they are now to be his witnesses. The word witness is going to appear over and over and over and over again in this book. And we can talk about, it's kind of like Christian lingo, right? to go out witnessing or to be a witness for Christ or something like that. But what is a witness? A witness is someone who saw something. Like when you see a car wreck, you stick around to tell the police officer what just happened. Or a trial attorney calls witnesses to uh, explain to the court what they saw. These disciples saw the resurrected and living Christ. Jesus has died on the cross for sins. He has, he has ascended to heaven to bring us to God. He is forming and transforming a people as his bride that will be presented in holiness and in beauty and in splendor. And the world must hear this news. Tell them what you know. Tell them what you've seen. Tell them the truth. Beginning in Jerusalem, the hot spot of God's presence in the Old Testament, and then expanding out into a larger concentric circle into Judea and Samaria, and then on to the ends of the, the earth, like a slow-growing mustard seed. Verse 8 is a pretty good outline, actually, for the rest of the book. The apostles are witnesses to the kingdom of Christ in Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7, then outward to the nearer regions of Judea and Samaria in chapters 8 through 11, and then they, the gospel then just gets catapulted out to the far reaches of the earth in chapters 12 through 28, even to like imperial courts and palaces. Something that standing here on this hillside in the Jewish backwoods, these disciples would have never dreamed about standing in like Rome, much less standing in an imperial palace 
And we'll have much more to think through here throughout the rest of the book about how to be helpfully challenged and what this means for our own lives and relationships as witnesses for Christ in our own um, jobs as being sent out witnesses for Christ. Much, much more. I, we need to be challenged in this area. But let's wrap this up in verses 9 through 11. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The disciples are like standing there, like with their mouths open. Like, can you imagine? Like, Jesus has finally disappeared from sight, and you're just standing there, like paralyzed in in action. Maybe with their charts already out on the table, working through the calculus of his return. Maybe content to just stand there remembering, like having the cockles of their heart slowly warmed by the glory and the beauty of Jesus. Whatever the reason for their inaction, Two presumably angelic beings come up and they, they're like snapping their fingers. Hey guys, let's go. It's time. Snap out of it. He is coming back in the same way, implying, well implying, again, the goal of any end times text. How should we now live in light of his coming return? Any end times text. Guys, it's a call to action. Get moving. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, securing and assuring for those of you who are trusting as your mediator and king. In in light of all those things now, his return is imminent. Meaning, we do not need to know the times or the seasons, but now could be the time or the season. He could return at any second. You do not need a chart to tell you that. So stop standing there with like a drooling mouth open waiting for his return. Let's go. How should we then live in hope and in expectation? How should we then live in confidence and assurance? How should we then live with urgency for those who don't know him? With urgency for those who have not heard his name and have believed in his work on their behalf. How should we then live in the confident power of the Holy Spirit who fills and sends? These disciples have a lot to do ahead of them. Nearly all of them, if church tradition is right, uh, will come to a, the end of their lives, putting, living their lives as living sacrifices for the sake of this gospel. We've got a lot to do in this book also. We've got a lot to be shaped by and transformed into. We've got a lot to behold and love for God, and we've got a lot to be shaped in our love and being sent to our neighbor and to the nations. So let's read this book a whole lot in the next few months. I just encourage you if, you, if you don't have, if you haven't been going through the church-wide reading plan that we've been going through, or if you don't have a plan for reading the Bible, start here. And just start in Acts chapter 1 and get to chapter 28 and then start it over again. And let's have God do some work in our hearts and in our actions for the sake of our risen and ascended and a reigning King Jesus. Let's now ask God for his help in that. God, we pray. We pray that you would re-energize, that you would revive us anew.
in love and in worship and assurance and confidence and security for what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, but also now with renewed energy and urgency for the sake of his kingdom. For the sake of an unbelieving world around us, we pray that you might work in us and through us, that you might cultivate throughout this book of Acts a greater passion for you, a greater compassion for our neighbor, that you might do an act works of power and might and of love and of grace through us, your humble but confident people. And we pray all these things confidently because of the ascended and seated Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.